Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face to face. <laughs> We're having a bit of a technical difficulty, as you can tell, but I'm standing here with a great group of young people led by Drew, and he's standing here next to me. Drew, tell us about what you guys... <laughs> Again, this is why I make the big bucks. Drew, tell us about what you guys are doing. Well, we're from West Covina, California. Uh, we're, this is the Christ Community Church College Group, and we're here to share the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ with those who are lost in Mormonism. And how have you enjoyed your time? This is your third trip, right? This is our third trip. Uh, for some of us, some of us it's our second, some of us it's our first, but so far we're having an absolutely amazing time. Fantastic. Anything that your group would like to share uh, with the audience? Yeah, we'd like to bear the testimony of God from the Holy Scriptures. All right, ready? Go. Isaiah 43.10, before me there is no gods formed, and there will be none after me. Praise God. God bless you guys as you're here, my brother. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh, I, I had a wardrobe malfunction here, so while I'm working on this, let me say a couple things. Uh, we're going to have a special tonight um, as a means to show heartfelt support to the homosexual community. The first five gay callers will each receive a $100 gift certificate to Chick-fil-A. So, uh, that's a joke! Uh, boy, tough crowd tonight. Hey, we want to invite you to join us for a statewide, never-denominational uh, communion service with Christians from all over the state of Utah. In this growing age of ecumenism, we want to have an event that celebrates Jesus as the true king. So, on Saturday, September 1st at Murray Park Amphitheater from 3 to 9 p.m., join us for our 7th Annual Burning Heart Festival. This is how the event is going to go. At 3 p.m., the doors will fly open. All sorts of booths and fun for kids, bounce houses, face painting, box lunches from Subway at a good price, popcorn machines, and other tents offering giveaways, products for sale, DVDs, books, other Christian paraphernalia. And at four, we will kick off our battle for the best Christian worship band in the state. Uh, if you uh, uh, attend a church with a good Christian band, call 385-282-3350 to sign up. Uh, between the performances, we'll have a number of special guests present to entertain and inform you. And I will be doing my own interpretive dance of Song of Solomon. Uh, after about 6.45 p.m., uh, we will announce the winning worship band for 2012, and then we're going to tone things down and commence with our statewide, non-denominational open communion with uh, the bread, the elements of the, of the communion there, distributed to the audience by pastors who are in attendance. Following this, we'll adjourn to River's Edge and do another open water baptism. We do that every year, and it's always a greatly attended and a great experience. Please get your pastor and church to join us. Encourage your worship team leaders and invite all your neighbors, especially LDS family and friends, people who are wondering about the truth, to come to Murray Park Amphitheater 3 to 9 p.m. And remember, go to www.hotm.tv for more information or call 385-282-3350 if you're a band wanting to participate. By the way, the first 500 families will receive their own Joseph Smith bumper sticker and uh, has a value of about $700,000. So show up and we will give you one of those. 
Let me tell you, if your life is lacking excitement and you're just kind of in the doldrums, stick one of those things on your car or on your laptop because in this state, things get exciting. Just last week, I was approached by a fast food manager as I sat working and eating my lunch, and he said, uh, you know, you are offending people here, sir. I said, how am I doing that? And he said, well, the sticker. And he said, we've had a number of people come up and complain about your presence, and if... It's getting me warmed up for my interpretive dance of Song of Solomon. Uh, in any case, um, We've had a number of people complain about your presence, and if it continues, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. I said I would be, I would, if he wants me to go, I would go, but I pointed out that I was a paying customer like everybody else, and I don't solicit people or talk to them on the premises, and that I was merely occupying a table like other guests. I felt bad for the guy. He's a nice guy in the position he was in. He wasn't put in that position by me and or himself. He was put in the position by the LDS who still believe they can somehow offend the spiritual sensitivities of the body of Christ, but they try to legislate what other people can do and say toward them. Think about this for a minute. Every day of the year, 65,000 Mormon missionaries go in pairs all over the world. They knock on doors and they tell Christian people that God appeared to their leader, Joseph Smith, and told him that all the churches were an abomination to them and that all their creeds uh, were far from his heart. Uh, they have a book of scripture that they completely attack and decimate the Catholic Church in, the Book of Mormon. They have prophets and apostles who have long disparaged Christianity and our Bible, uh, but that's okay. They have a temple ceremony wherein there's a Protestant uh, preacher who's in the employment of Satan, and he's paid by Satan to preach the Protestant gospel, but that's okay. And, uh, you know, but my bumper sticker stuck on the back of my laptop uh, uh, just leads them to uh, threatening to jackboot me out for hate speech and being an anti-Mormon. Anyway, if you want that same kind of treatment, uh, let us come to Burning Heart and be one of the first 500 families. You'll get one for free. And from that, how about a moment from the Word? Where the music's supposed to be tonight. We're, it's going to be like the opposite thing of Seinfeld. Where the music's supposed to be, it won't be. And where the sp music is not supposed to be, it will be. So that was the intro to From the Word. In John chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And a couple of Greek guys, by way of Philip, are introduced to the Lord. This is the setting. And it seems that in meeting with them, Jesus says, He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. I personally find this passage at great odds with the general temperament flowing from the lives of the Latter-day Saints that I know, especially when compared to the outlook of most true Christians. Um, LDS Apostle Richard G. Scott, in an article titled, How to Live Well Amid Increasing Evil, as reported in the May 2004 Insign, page 102 said, God's eternal purpose is for you to be successful in this mortal life. He's talking about monetary success. No matter how wicked the world becomes, you can earn that blessing, end quote. As we've mentioned many times in the past, the underlying focus of Mormonism is materialism, money, and worldly accomplishment as well as holy living as, as far as it can be attained. And yet here Jesus says plainly, 
he that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hates his life in this world, that's a strong phrase, shall keep it unto life eternal. Bottom line, there's no way to justitude, that's a new word, there's no way to justify the two concepts. You are either of the Lord or you are of this world. You are, uh, you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon. It's impossible to serve them both. Our king had no place to rest his head. He taught in the parable of the sower that one of the results of not producing fruit was that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things would enter in and make people unfruitful. And yet Mormonism throughout its existence has somehow managed to convince its believers that this is just not so. So if you're LDS, are you proud of the $5.3 billion shopping mall full of worldly stores that your church has built? Are you proud of the dark, alluring advertisements all up and down the I-15? I mean, there's women in, strap, uh, in uh, sleeveless gowns, no, no garments, with glasses of wine that are promoting this mall that your church owns. You can't wear those gowns. You can't drink that wine. But they'll certainly use those trappings to get people in there and to buy products so that they can increase their bottom line. If you can see this is what your church is about, run. Run into the arms of the Lord and run into a relationship with him. And, uh, and I think you will never, I know you will never regret it. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we come to you and seek you and, and your ways and uh, apologize for the things that are my ways. We pray for our staff and the volunteers, for our audience members, wherever they may be, Lord. And we pray that your truth will come shining through in all that we say and do here tonight. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began going through the Book of Mormonian and pulling out passages that reflect 19th century biblical Christianity that are in the Book of Mormon and also passages that are in conflict with present day Mormon teachings. And we gave you about 50 of those last week. Well, tonight we're going to continue to examine by observing how the Book of Mormon describes the nature of man, the cleansing blood of Christ, grace, works, spiritual rebirth, and salvation relative to how Mormons see these concepts today. So why don't we start off by talking about the general nature of man. Brigham Young said, We are the sons and daughters of celestial beings, and the germ of deity dwells within us. When our spirits took possession of these tabernacles, they were as pure as the angels of God, wherefore total depravity cannot be a true doctrine. Uh, LDS apostle John Widstow said, God and man are of the same race, differing only in their degrees of advancement. And then Hugh B. Brown, member of the LDS First Presidency, said, We proclaim the spiritual and inspiring doctrine that man should look up and not down for his source. For he is of divine lineage, that man is innocent at birth, which is the antithesis of the ball and chain doctrine of original sin and innate wickedness. So yet the Book of Mormon, written well before Joseph Smith led himself to more advanced doctrine, so to speak, it says things that are quite different. In Alma 30:25, it says that people are guilty, a fallen people, because of the transgression of a parent. That means of Adam. In 2 Nephi 2:21, it says, and showed all men that they are lost 
because of the transgression of their parents. Mosiah 3.19 says, For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam. How is, being, how is a being who is born supposedly innocent and a child of God an enemy of God at the same time? Book of Mormon teaches enemy of God. Christianity teaches enemy of God. But yet Mormon apostles and prophets today say, no, 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 we're all children of God. Born innocent, pure as a driven snow, etc., etc. What's happened? How did this occur? Messiah also teaches all mankind is carnal, sensual, devilish, subjecting themselves to the devil. This is pure Christian uh, teachings. Uh, Helaman 14, 16 teaches that all mankind due to the fall is spiritually dead. And it actually uses that phrase, spiritually dead. Uh, and Alma 22:14, echoing that man is spiritually dead, says, says, since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself. This is totally contrary to how LDS paint the picture of man today and women today when they're born in this earth. The Book of Mormon is teaching an absolutely Christian ideal here. We're going to tell you why in a minute. And then finally, Messiah 27, 25 to 26 says that a man must be born again, born of God, changed from the carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, becoming new creatures. Sounds like that stuff came right out of the Bible, doesn't it? Right from one of the million Christian pulpits that had existed over the ages teaching things like this. Finally, Helaman 14.6 says, All mankind being cut off from the presence of the Lord are as dead. That is the Christian doctrine. We are born, born uh, dead. To him, We are dead because of Adam's uh, sin. And it is only through spiritual regeneration that we are reunited in that relationship as his children. Prior to that, we are just creatures. The LDS Church renounces that today. So it's clear that Joseph Smith's Book of Mormonian taught the biblical idea that because of Adam, humanity was born in sin, having no merit before God and spiritually dead. These teachings are lost in present-day Mormonism. What happened? We're going to tell you in just a minute. So now, how does Mormonism uh, today present the solution to sin in humanity? What do they say? It certainly isn't through the blood of Jesus. When I was a kid, the LDS prophet Spencer W. Kimball wrote, wrote in perhaps the worst book ever written in the history of man called The Miracle of Forgiveness. Spencer W. Kimball wrote, one of the most fallacious doctrines originated by Satan and propounded by man is that man is saved alone by the grace of God. That belief in Jesus alone is all that is needed for salvation. That was the Mormon prophet when I was a kid. You wonder why I get kind of heated sometimes. LDS apostle Bruce R. McConkie said, The second greatest heresy in Christendom is that men are saved by grace alone without works merely by confessing the Lord Jesus with their lips. And in a book sometimes, uh, in a book called Sermons and Writings, McConkie also said, the blood of Christ was shed as a great gift of wondrous grace, but the saints are cleansed by the blood after they keep the commandments. This attitude remains flowing through the self-righteous veins of members of the Mormon church from the top to the bottom. But in many places, the Book of Mormon reflects a purely 19th century Christian position. I say in many places because there is one passage in the Book of Mormon that is in conflict with the idea of saved by grace, and we'll get to that in another day. So in comparison to what LDS leaders say today, listen to the Christian-sounding passages from the Book of Mormon. 
Second Nephi 31.19 talks of believers relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Ether 4, 6, and 12 says, The Lord said, Good cometh of none, save it be of me. Moroni 6, 4 says, Relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who is the author and finisher of their faith. Straight from the Bible, by the way. Moroni 7.24, all things which are good cometh of Christ. Otherwise, men were fallen. And 2 Nephi 31.19, you have not come, save it were by the words of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Again, the Book of Mormon, a fictional counterfeit to the uh, Bible espouses the doctrines of 19th century and present day, really, Christianity. But Mormonism's modern day apostles and prophets, they do not teach these things. Why? What happened? What purpose does the book really serve if it's not followed doctrinally or in practice? Before we answer this, we have to realize that Mormonism teaches that the first principles of the gospel are faith, repentance, baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands by somebody with the Mormon authority. Mormons call those the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. For Mormons, these are very basic elementary things. To Christians, they are everything. But to Mormons, they're just basic, and in fact, they're so basic, they bestow them upon their eight-year-olds. It's at eight when, they, when eight-year-old Mormon kids are supposed to have faith, they're supposed to repent. They're supposed to be baptized in water and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by somebody in the Mormon church. Uh, after this, Mormonism places a whole bunch, a whole stack of requirements, added principles and ordinances of the gospel on the backs of their people as a means to maintain their salvation and also to establish their exaltation and to ensure that they have the right when they're dead to become a god. So they give you the first principles of the gospel when you're eight, and they talk about Jesus then, and after that they throw on a heap of life works in order for you to maintain the salvation and become exalted. The presence of these uh, additional principles and ordinances of the Mormon gospel, they often serve as a point of pride within, within, on the Mormons. And so what happens is Latter-day Saint men and women who are really ensconced in the church, they look down on Christians as being kind of sophomoric in their faith. Oh, you're a, you're a Christian saved by grace through faith. How nice, little guy. We have the uh, fullness of the gospel that we carry on our backs in preparation for us to become gods, you see. And when you're LDS, and I, remember I was 40 years, in the inner sanctum and in the priesthood meetings and in the, uh, the comings and goings of, of Sunday school, these are the attitudes. And this is what the attitude is toward the Christian uh, world. But what's interesting is the Book of Mormon, in the preface of it, says it contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. And in fact, uh, Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants 42.12 says that the Bible and Book of Mormon together contain the fullness of the gospel. So, if that's so, why doesn't the Book of Mormon or the Bible teach about God having a body of flesh and bone, God being an exalted man, uh, eternal marriage being requisite for exaltation, a mother in heaven, a priesthood, a Melchizedek priesthood where men on earth become high priests, Lucifer being a spirit sibling, Jesus being conceived by a fleshly father, temple endowments, temple ceilings, all of that is missing in the Book of Mormon. And, uh, so, and that's just skimming the surface. 
So while the LDS today truly look down their noses at saved by grace through faith Christians who praise Jesus and, and supposedly can't wait to go sit on a cloud and play a harp for eternity, that's how they describe Christians, um, listen how Joseph Smith described characters in the Book of Mormon who came to understand who Jesus was. Listen to this rhetoric that he includes in the Book of Mormon and you tell me where he got it from, okay? 2 Nephi 2.22 has a character and it says, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me and thine anger is turned away and thou hast comforted me, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and be not afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. And in that day ye shall say, Praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his doings. Does that sound like Mormonism today? Not at all. But it was certainly the way they preached from the pulpit in Joseph Smith's time because it's the way they preach from the pulpit today. Listen to Alma 1927. Oh, blessed Jesus, who has saved me from an awful hell. Oh, blessed God. You would no more hear this type of talk in a Mormon church today than, than, than you would hear a... a uh, I can't even make a comparison. I'll get in trouble. I always do. Okay. In Mosiah 4, 2 through 7, it says... And they viewed themselves in their own carnal state, saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ that we may receive a remission of sins. And they were filled with joy after received a remission of their sins because of their exceeding faith in Jesus Christ that salvation might come to them that should put his trust in the Lord. This is the man that received salvation. This is pure 19th century Christian rhetoric. And it's true rhetoric. And this is what makes the Book of Mormon so inviting to people who aren't informed about what the purpose of this book was. And finally, in Moroni 7, uh, 48, it, uh, it says, Pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart, that you may be filled with the love which he has bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear you may be like him, that we may be purified even as he is pure. So, again, the point is to show that Joseph started his religious fiction off on a traditional Christian bent, and the narrative of the Book of Mormon proves it. So what actually happened along the way in the historical Mormon narrative that took it from being based on a traditional Christian bent contained in the Book of Mormon to becoming this holy, non-Christian, humanist focus of world, 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 and man, man, man. Before we open the phone lines, allow me to give you a limited opinion of how I think things played out in seven uh, phases. Ready? Phase one. Joseph Smith Sr. and his son Joseph Jr. were poor and destitute, and they spent, we know this, a lot of time doing two things talking about Christianity and the problems with it and trying to convince people that they had the ability to locate buried treasure using folk magic practices. That's a fact. That's phase one. Phase two, over the course of time, the Smiths parlayed these two focuses, Christianity and its faults and magic, into a tale of there being buried gold plates. This morphed into a book which became added historical flair of where the Indians came from, and then it added a religious nature too. Phase three, 
In the end, the finished Book of Mormon was nothing more than a counterfeit to the Bible, even to the point that it used Elizabethan English, with the setting being America rather than Israel and the American Indians. And like everything else in Joseph's life and story, once the Book of Mormon was printed, he ran it up the proverbial flagpole to see if anybody would salute. All right? Phase four. The book was in fact saluted primarily by people who did not have a knowledge of what the Bible was really about. And as a result, Joseph merged into this role of being prophet, seer, and revelator. Phase five. With this newfound respect, Joseph Smith moved from his old stomping grounds because he had been arrested and known as a glass looker by everybody there. He moved away and he realized that for the religion to grow, he had to somehow differentiate it from the other upstart and competing Christian churches. The Book of Mormon helped with this, but more revelations were necessary to totally place Joseph's church in a category far removed from all the Bible-based churches popping up around them. Advanced revelations and prophecies began to surface and serve this purpose. Phase six, in time, these revelations that Joseph would have superseded the generally Christian concepts of the Book of Mormon, and in time, they took precedence in the church in terms of emphasis and importance. So, phase seven. Today, the Book of Mormon, like it did at the start, continues to serve as bait in bringing unsuspecting people into the boat called Mormonism without them realizing that in time they will be gutted, filleted, and fried in a pan of totally non-biblical doctrines and practices, most of which are in conflict with their own first book of Scripture. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. We, uh, first-time callers, uh, please, LDS callers, please, and... Uh, and uh, turn your TV sets down. Our ability to remain on the air and in ministry directly is related to you. We thank all of you uh, who in the open and in uh, secret support the ministry. We could always, always, always use any support in which the Lord leads you to give, whether it's prayer, volunteerism, or if in a position, financial. Uh, however the Lord leads. If you want to know more information on how to do that, go to www.hotm.taivai. All right? <clears throat> uh, I, tell them to get rid of that quote because I can't read it and just open it up for calls if they, if they call. All right, got an email from a man named Fred. Fred said, Even though I have only watched a couple of shows part-time, you are rude and mean. Even your dress and look is gross. Every week you look sloppy. Some weeks you look like you came from Hobo City. You know, the hobos in Hobo City would be highly offended by that remark. Uh, some, something like they found in a dumpster. You look like you are having a midlife crisis and that you want to resort to your teen years of 12 to 13. Why don't you take a bath, change your clothes, cut your hair? Can't you decide if you're a boy or a gay? And if you are a man or a girl in boys' clothes? The logic of this guy is stupefying. Now, honestly, if you're a preacher, you should dress more like one. Some weeks you make people barf. 
we get, we get these all the time, but Fred's was really, really uh, sincere. So three questions for you, Fred. Three. What do you think you'd do if you saw John the Baptist face to face? <laughs> How would you relate to him, Fredster? I mean, would you, would you call him out in needing a bath? Pull the grasshoppers out of your beard, John? You're not suitable to represent the Lord Jesus Christ and be the one who paves the way for him? Secondly, Freddie, what would you do if you saw Jesus? If he walked by you in a park? I mean, Isaiah says there was nothing about him that was handsome that you would want from him, that men would desire of him. He was a reed grown out of dry ground. I mean, what would you do when you saw him? What would you do if he walked into your ward, Fredster? Would you say, oh, look at that reprobate. Why doesn't he bathe? Why doesn't he cut his hair? Why doesn't he change his clothes? I mean, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with all of you people? I mean, I get the looks constantly. It's why I dress this way, you idiots. Because I want you to see what's in your heart. I want you to see exactly how you work and how you look at people and you make the assessment and you think that's how God sees them too. Finally, I gotta quote Paul. Am I therefore your enemy, Freddie, because I tell you the truth? Why is it you don't pick on me for anything I say? All you do is pick on me for my hair and my clothes and for thinking I need a bath. All of this stuff is so superficial which it kind of is indicative of maybe you and your heart. Over the years, the ministry has come across men and women who sometimes believe that they should have an answer to every one of their questions. One such writer is a man named Bob B. We used to try to answer Bob B's incessant questions, but we have learned that some people just ask to know things and other people ask to argue. So Bob writes, Sean, when you were on the telephone with tender believers, who are not knowledgeable, you come across as very informed and knowledgeable. However, just like Mormon scholars, when you are asked the hard questions, either you won't answer or you become insulting. If you want your ministry to grow, says Bob, this cannot be a good way to be. Remember, you can fool all the people some of the time, but only a small amount of some people all of the time. And from this, I hope I will get an intelligent, empathetic response. You're not going to get one, Bob because your whole thing is not about finding truth. If someone called with the most difficult questions, I would spend all week trying to find the answer if I didn't have it. I will spend any amount of time, I will drive as far as my car will take me to sit with anyone searching for truth. But when I run into the likes of guys like you who know everything and you want to do all the teaching, well, um, that's not my call. We're here to put out to reach out. And when people want to get into a dialogue or a debate or to apologetics, I don't care. I don't care if you think you're right. I do not care if you have a really good point and you want to make it to prove something this way or that way. It doesn't matter to me, Bob. I care about people. I care about them coming to know the truth. And, and Bob, you represent a whole bunch of people who constantly write and badger us saying, how come you won't respond? How come you won't respond? Cat got your tongue? We give you a question you can't answer, and they answer a question like, how come Jesus was baptized, dude? Uh, I mean, it's just insane, the, 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 the arrogance that comes out of your fingertips and comes before our eyes. So listen closely. If you're searching for truth, we're here for you. I will give you my left leg, and I will come and sit with you. But if you, don't, if you think you have the truth and you're here to kind of check on us and talk to us and teach us and argue with us, you're wasting your time. Okay, let's go to uh, Scott in Riverton. 
He's an atheist, and this has got to be a good call because we have a big thing that we got to present. Scott, you're on Heart of the Matter. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. I have a just kind of a quick point, and I'm going to leave you alone. I uh, have come out of Mormon, and uh, I've realized that it's 100% fake, and uh, I've actually done a lot of research on every religion and looked at everything. And I want to kind of just say one thing and let you kind of answer as honestly as you will. Okay, but we have a little feedback problem. Before you keep talking, is there something I need to do? Stop it! Does that help? That's all I can do. Is there anything else I need to do to stop the feedback problem? Does that work? My TV's off. My You're doing everything right, Scott. Uh, okay, we're going to go ahead and try it. Okay. Um, you, I've seen you compare like humans to ants and not understanding a TV. And I want you to respond to the idea that maybe somebody dropped a donut on an anthill. And maybe, just maybe, there's nothing out there but just truth and science. Okay, before you hang up, I don't understand the someone dropping the donut on the anthill and maybe there is just truth and science. I don't understand the connection, so re-articulate that for us. I don't believe there's any God anywhere. I think it's all science and fact and okay. gravity, etc. Okay, well, I'm going to respond to you in the way that uh, the Bible, which I, which I do trust, explains it. Now, you may not accept that, but that's going to be my explanation, okay? The Bible tells us that every man knows there's a God, that you are without excuse if you suggest you don't that you can look up at nature and nature herself, the cosmos and the leaves and the animals and the ants and your human hand and your eye and woodpeckers all and the oceans. But I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. Okay, but... let me, I, I let you give your premise. Let me do, I'm almost done. That right. nature reveals it. Also what reveals it is you have a law written in your heart called conscience. You, and, and there's a law in your heart that tells you what is good and right. That comes from this creator. And then there are other laws that are written on paper and there are laws written on the, on the Son of God and all these other things. So I would suggest one, this is my premise, is that you cannot say with any sort of real honesty that you don't believe there is a God. For one reason, if you appeal to the scientific method, you're saying there is no God. That means that you have checked under every rock. You've looked under every source. You've opened every book and you've searched for him in all those places and you have discovered that he is nowhere in this universe. Is that true? I can't say that I've looked everywhere, but Then I've, how do you know he's not in the places you haven't looked? I don't know. I just know Indians look to the rain clouds and we figured out that that was like low pressures and just moving around and, you know, Again? sailors prayed that the storm wouldn't hit him and it's just you know, I think at some point just science proves that it's, you know, I, I, think, I think that the donut has to be explained at some point and it's some... Who dropped the donut and who made the donut? I don't understand the donut concept. I'm just saying that it's just science. You made the donut, you stuck it on the anthill, and they think God delivered the donut. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, you know, nature does. I mean, obviously, we know that many religious practices began with people fearing nature. 
We know that. But but Romans tells us, hey, look at you can look at nature. I mean, come on, uh, Scott, I understand can, what you're saying, but how many of those religious can you stand back and look at and see? It's That's clearly ridiculous. Oh, sure, we can look at many religious uh, uh, applications and say they're ridiculous. I agree with that. But but so what we can do is we can say what is truth, right? Can you agree that, that you're... I agree. I've been watching your show for a long time, and I've actually done what you've said and, and laid everything out and tried, to, and tried to see some miraculous thing that happens. And I think people look for something. And I've been open-minded, and, and I come out of Mormonism really trying. And I'm telling you, I have seen nothing. I can grab something and say, well, that light shining that way, or my light bulb burned out on my front porch. And, try to grab something, but I, there is nothing. Me, I don't see anything, and I, I think it's, I, I really believe it's just fact. And I, I, the, the fact, scientific fact, is constantly changing and evolving and proven wrong. That I is, know, it's, no, it's, a, it's, it's proving that there is no God. Okay, but wait a second, wait a second. It doesn't prove there is no God. We established that doesn't prove constantly anything. It constantly grows, and it constantly sees that there is no God. You, huh. you pray to the rain or you pray to the sun and we figured out now it just comes around every day and you know then the storms come and then the rains come and so, then the snow comes so scott yes. wait, wait, do you have children i do okay so how did you don't believe that a creator created those children well science tells me it's a sperm and an egg okay so you don't believe that the creator set that system up I'm not sure. No. Okay. I'm not sure is fine. I I can I can understand not sure. Very open to okay. not sure, but I see nothing that shows me that a God created something. Okay. So whenever you look at the eyes of a, the blue eyes of a child or, or or anything like this, you don't see God's handiwork in that stuff at all. I see a donut on an ant hill. Okay. Well, there's nothing I can do about that perspective, but I can say that I have discovered and others have discovered that when you are willing to believe and you are seeking... No, I'm absolutely willing. That's are you? I'm very open to it. What okay. I'm telling you is I've been doing this for years. Okay, after. well, maybe you need to do it for five more. Maybe God isn't responding to you. I don't know why he does things. I'm, I'm open to that, but what, what I want um, just said is that some people do what you're saying on TV. Yeah. I haven't heard anything. I have felt nothing. So you personally haven't. So oh, let haven't. me ask you a question. I'm just trying to appeal to some of your logic before I go to the spiritual side really quickly. But Scott, if you take an uh, IBM, if you take a laptop and you take all of its parts and you deconstruct that laptop and you throw it out in the desert, will it take a million, a billion, a hundred billion years for that thing to put itself back together? Maybe. Do you not see any type of master creator who puts the, the, the completely uh, it, uh, uh, amazing parts of the cosmos on down to the microscopic parts together? You don't see any type of handiwork in that? I'm looking for it, my friend. Keep I... looking. That's all we can say is if you're willing to keep your mind open toward truth, he will show you. You haven't seen yet. That's, that's okay. I can't do anything about that, neither can you. But we are commanded to walk by faith. And if you truly believe him, then you, you, you believe that there could be an answer. You're open to there possibly being an answer. Continue to proceed and see if you see. See if you do see something miraculous in the, chill, in the makeup of your child or in, the, or in the miracles that you see around you, things like that. 
It's the best I can do. I'm not a great uh, apologist when it comes to atheism. I would rather talk with an atheist, though, than other certain groups. And I'd be more than happy to sit down with you and use the Bible to help talk you through it if you want. All you got to do is email me and I'll meet you. I promise. I don't believe in the Bible, but I appreciate you. And just thanks for taking my call. All right, my friend. Thank you for calling. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay, listen, uh, we're gonna, uh, I gotta go through this because it's very important. Our operators have been given strict instructions to give us only the best calls because I know some of you love the callers only and don't like even what I have to say in my primary message, but this is a big one. Um, we have long stood on the premise that it is a huge mistake of the body of Christ to try and reform the world. Our king never sought to reform the world and frankly, he died for a world that ignored moral reformation. He died for a condemned world. And for years, we have strongly suggested here on the show that the Christian call is to be one of sharing Jesus and truth and love and not trying to save the world through legislation and uh, protests or joining hands with non-Christian elements, namely Mormonism, as a means to rule over this fallen kingdom uh, because it's just one giant trap. Years ago, we warned our viewing audience that it would be through Christians trying to rectify this lost and sinful world through political means that Mormonism would worm its way into the body. And sadly, we see that this insight was dead on. As national leaders representing our Lord have used his name and moved from looking at the cross and the solutions that he provided us, to instead focusing on their efforts and time and money on fighting evil, the LDS have seen a crack in our once resolute stance against doctrinal error and have slipped into our midst. As we've said time and time again, the refocus away from the cross and on moral issues started with Cornelius Van Til and probably before it was perpetuated by the so-called moral majority and now the evangelical right and is now in the hands of guys who believe that the world must be dominated by laws of God before Jesus can or will return. They are known as dominionists. And presently, they exist at various levels of dedication to the cause. Some of the more zealous dominionists in this world are Al Dagger, Rick Joyner, Jay Grimstead, Janice Rogers-Brown, George Grant. And as my, but as my friend Steve C. in Florida points out, do not think that dominion theology is a movement supported only by those on the fringe of fundamentalism, as some of the leading lights who, who subscribe to some form of dominionism include Paul Crouch, James Dobson, Ted Haggard, Kenneth Hagan, Jack Hayford, D. James Kennedy, Tim LaHaye, Gary North, Rod Parsley, Fred Price, Pat Robertson, R.J. Rushdooney, Rick Warren, and John Whitehead. I don't know this as fact, but I would be willing to bet that every name I have mentioned here is completely behind the idea that Christians need to unite behind an LDS political leader or leaders as the Latter-day Saints shame the, share the same ideology to govern by virtue of laws imposed in the name of God to help bring about the second coming of Christ. I mean, even in this state of Utah, where you would think believers, pastors, and Christian leaders would have the greatest understanding of Mormon doctrine and the dangers of embracing the Mormon machine, most of the larger churches have chosen to stand together with Mormonism rather than apart from them. How did this happen? 
Years ago, the self-appointed federal head of Christian churches here in the state of Utah was befriended or befriended a BYU professor of religion and indirectly an LDS apostle by the name of Jeffrey Holland. This politically minded brother, blinded by the dark light of Mormonism's allure, found himself welcome into their inner sanctum and has ever since used his influence in the body to get the Christian leaders of this state to adopt a method of talking with the LDS in a kinder, gentler fashion, which in the end has meant building bridges with them. Today, this man and his ministry stands with the LDS in their pursuit of winning the highest office in the nation, as do the cowardly churches and their pastors who have followed their lead, essentially selling out the pure cause of Christ in the name of world unity and political conservatism. In this month's edition of the LDS magazine, The Ensign, there is a reprint of a speech LDS apostle uh, Jeffrey Holland delivered to an audience of national Christian leaders on May 10th of this year. Holland, again speaking to nationally recognized Christian leaders, opened his remarks by saying this. Friends, you know what I know. That there is in the modern world so much sin and moral decay affecting everyone, especially the young, and it seems to be getting worse by the day. You and I share so many concerns about the spread of pornography and poverty, abuse and abortion, illicit sexual transgression, both homosexual and heterosexual, violence, crudity, cruelty, and temptation, all glaring as close as your daughter's cell phone or your son's iPad. Surely there is a way, listen, for people of goodwill who love God and have taken upon themselves the name of Christ to stand together for the cause of Christ and against the forces of sin. In this, we have every right to be bold and believing for, quote, and he quotes Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? I can barely continue to read this talk, but I'm gonna. Holland says, you serve and, and preach, teach, and labor in that confidence, and so do I. And in doing so, I believe we can trust in the next verse from Romans as well. Quote, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not be with him also freely? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? End quote. He, he goes on and says, I truly believe that if across the world we can all try harder not to separate each other from the love of Christ, we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is a description of ecumenism. This is a description of a one world nation. This is a description of a one world church. And that is what they are pushing for. And that is what those Christian leaders' names I read earlier are pushing for. And they're doing it through political activism and their power and their money and their might. Holland went on to describe the tenuous relationship that has existed between Christians and Latter-day Saints, but states he believes things have since changed for the better because of, quote, constructive theological dialogue, end quote. He goes on to say, the first of those formal dialogues took place in the spring of 2000 at Brigham Young University. As the dialogue began to sh take shape, it was apparent that the participants were searching for a paradigm of some sort, a model, a point of reference. Were these to be confrontational, arguments, debates? And he goes on and he talks all about 
these dialogues that have now morphed into these true form of brotherhood and sisterhood with a kindness between all these Christians and the LDS who they might disagree on some points of argument but are willing to stand together and unite against this decrepit world. After talking about the fact that both sides certainly will remain true to their doctrinal differences, we'll see about that, Holland adds, furthermore, we are always looking for common ground and common partners in the hands-on work of the ministry now. Now it's the ministry with the LDS. We would be eager to join hands with our evangelical friends in a united Christian effort, in a united Christian effort to strengthen families and marriages, to demand more morality in media, to provide humane relief effort in times of natural disasters, to address the ever-present plight of the poor, and to guarantee the freedom of religion that will allow all of us to speak out on matters of Christian conscience uh, regarding the social issues of our time. He goes on, he says, the larger and more united the Christian voice, Holland, LDS apostle to a group of, of Christian leaders in the nation, the, he says, larger and more united the Christian voice, the more likely we are to carry the day in these matters. That is, that is there's another way to say that is, we join together, we can dominate this world, and we can rid it of the evil that surrounds us. I have no argument that we're surrounded by evil. None whatsoever. But I do have an argument in what the Bible describes as the prescription for this evil and what the Bible says will be the end result of this evil. Inevitability. The prescription is Christ and Christ alone. And the, the churches are forming bonds with these non-Christian elements in order to try to correct the world and it's going to turn on us. Can I be more emphatic, more outlandish looking when I try to explain this to you. We are going down a dark, stupid, stupid path with these LDS leaders and they know what they're doing. They have used this local evangelical politically minded leader as a little puppet. He's a little puppet and they've moved him into position and they've got him exactly where they want him to be and we can even see it reflected in this talk. He goes on and he literally says, in that regard, we should remember the Savior's warning uh, uh, regarding a house divided against itself. He uses the Bible and the Lord talking about a house divided against himself. And he says that is what we are doing by not including the Mormon church in, our, uh, in the body of Christ. A house that finds it cannot stand against more united foes pursuing an often unholy agenda, end quote. Holland then spoke of Christ, the LDS adoration of him, and he talks, and then he says there's a call to the Christian conscience. And he quotes Tim LaHaye. He quotes a Christian evangelical, a noted Christian man who says, and, he, and Holland, the Mormon, is quoting this to these religious leaders. Tim LaHaye said, if religious Americans work together in the name of our mutually shared moral concerns, we just might succeed in reestablishing the civic moral standards that our forefathers thought were guaranteed by the United States Constitution. All of our nation's religious citizens, religious citizens need to develop a respect for other religious people and their beliefs. 
we need not accept their belief, but we can respect the people and realize that we have more in common with each other than we will ever have with secularizers of this country. It's time for all religiously committed citizens to unite against the common enemy. Bullshit talky mushrooms. It's a bunch of bull. Jesus Christ did not come and bring this. This is not his message. It's unbelievable. Before concluding, Holland says, to be sure there are risks associated with learning about someone new. And then listen to the stance he takes. This, this man, listen to what he says. When we look beyond people's color, thanks Holland, I'm glad you're finally doing it. When we look beyond people's color, ethnic group, social circle, church, synagogue, mosque, creed, and statements of belief, and when we try our best to see them for who and what they are, children of God. This is anti-Bible. Something good and worthwhile happens within us, and we are thereby drawn into a closer union with that God who is the Father of us all. And he closes quoting the Bible and then the Book of Mormon. The name of the Ensign article that went out to every Latter-day Saint, standing together for the cause of Christ. Every single believer in this nation has to seriously ask themselves, what was the cause of Christ? Because the way you answer is going to determine on how you stand. All right, uh, we have Mike in Salem. Mike on line three. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Mike? this is Mike from Salem. You're on the air, my friend. Hey, um, I, w I just was uh, wanting to talk a little bit about, we've got a, a, a few weeks ago you talked about um, uh, the, all the apostles talking about these kids coming home pure and not, uh, you know, it was better, better to be dead than to... Oh, yeah. Home. Yeah. Well, uh, down here in, in South Utah County, we've had a couple of young men that have, that have, committed suicide just recently here and and uh, the people are just just sick about it and uh, and it's all because they feel like they've been they've let their church down and wow. they've uh, and that they've uh, and there's nowhere to turn because uh, the Mormon church has taken Jesus and the gospel from them and uh, they feel like they have no recourse and they they commit suicide and uh, and I think that uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? I think it's indicative of the fruit of the bottom line doctrines of the church, that moral perfectionism and, uh, and earning your salvation, uh, your exaltation through your righteousness and good deeds will always produce young people and even old people who take their own life because of despair. Uh, Jesus came and he brought hope because he took on all of our sin and it is by and through our looking to him, Mike, and placing our faith and trust in him and his strength that we're able to overcome the sins that so easily beset us. The LDS remove him from the element and they say, you need to do it in order, like McConkie said, to uh, receive the uh, saving grace that he provided. And it's pernicious and it's one of the fruits of this uh, uh, diabolical religion. That's exactly what I was getting at. I mean, these people, we love them. They need the gospel. The gospel, they, they, I, I just appeal to the, to the Christian churches here to, to, um, 
to preach the gospel. You know, um, um, they need to know the love of Christ. Amen. He died for that sin, too. And they need to look, these young men need to look at those guys sitting up on the stand in sacrament meeting and know that they're liars, cheaters, and adulterers at heart, that, that they're as guilty of the sins that these young men have, you know, even if they've just, Jesus said when, if you look at a woman to lust after her, well, this is what happened. This kid um, went a little too far with his girlfriend, and now he's let down his family, he's let down his church, and he doesn't realize that, that the church is full of people just like him, but they've taken Jesus away from him and said that he has to get through these fallen leaders to get to God. Amazing. It just, it just makes me just hurt. Mike, I just call to these, to these people to, to, to come to Christ, to, that he died for your sin. Um, there's, there's nothing that you've done that, that you need to take your life for. And that, uh, and that that is the diabolical problem with the church. That's why they need to, um, these other pastors and stuff, need to not hook up with them because um, this is what they are going to eventually do. They would like to put that burden on everyone so that they can build. Amen, Mike. I really appreciate your call, my brother. Very timely. Thank you so much. Yep, bye. God bless. Bye-bye. Listen. If, I don't care if you've had a life of sin, you know, if you cannot stop sinning. The Lord died for you 2,000 years ago plus, and He did it all. It's done. He did it. And you look to Him, and He is there for you. And, and the fruits of this religion and putting the weight back on your back is uh, anathema. It is absolutely contrary to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I was saved, removed from the most fleshly, ugly human being impossible because of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he can save me, he can save anybody, anybody. And he did save me, and he changed me, and that's what he does for you. So join us next week as we continue on to examine Mormonism relative to biblical Christianity. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.